Hi, everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Everybody, welcome. This is going to be a real fun session today. Uh, Keisha and I just figured out that we have actually been on a, been on a call together before. Uh, many of you know that we posted Elaine Ingham a number, several times, four times, I believe, maybe five, um, doing her uh, presentations about um, the, the soil food web and also about microbes and their beneficial impact on soil and her method of composting, actually. So um, we may hear a little more about that, but Keisha um, reminded me that we were on a call together one time, and uh, and she just said that minus just a little paperwork, she's very close to finishing her certification with, with Elaine. I was trying to think of the name of the lady that's now heading up Soil Food Web's um, entire ac academic program, Kristen comes to mind, but I'm not sure that's right. Uh, I haven't met her yet. Luke's going to introduce me to her. Kim Martin, I believe. Yeah, that's it. That's who it is. It's Kim Fantastic. I love her. <laughs> yeah. does, does she have a farm herself, do you know? You know, I'm, I, I think she does, but I can't recall. I, she's so busy with the school now. <laughs> I, I doubt she's doing much farming. <laughs> Well, we're going to do this today, everybody, as an interview format, and you can see that Areeb is going to put up a bunch of really cool slides that will show different elements of, of Keisha's business, and um, I'd like you to put questions in, and Mark will be looking for those, so Mark and Areeb and I are, are sort of the hosts here today, and Keisha's our guest, and so, Mark, would you please look for when you get some questions, if it makes sense to interrupt us, go ahead and do that. Otherwise, we'll catch questions at the end. Um, a lot of times we don't get as many questions as I think we should. So there's not a bad question. Everyone's a good one. So if you would, make sure to type your questions in. And actually, at the end, if any of you want, um, there's a little icon there that it looks like a hand raise. And you could put that on, and we'll unmute you, maybe, and we can let you ask a question of Keisha live. So we'll go for about an hour, and we're very respectful of our speaker's time. And, and if there's questions that go longer, we'll ask Keisha if she's got a little bit of time to go longer. But anyway, thanks for coming. Appreciate you all being here. Here's I'm going to ask you to, put, to do your first typing right now. Put in, in the uh, little question box where you're at in the world. And second, put in, if you're hearing us all right and seeing us on our webcam and the slides, put a one in. Uh, in internet jargon, one means I agree with you. Yes, that's right. So if you'll do that, that'd be great. So Keisha, um, take us back in your life. Tell us sort of about your youth and where you grew up and sort of what that background is. Sure thing. Um, I actually grew up in the Midwest in southern Missouri, just north of Arkansas in a little town called West Plains. 
Um, my family, they're all farmers. Uh, I was raised on a cattle farm. We grew all of our own veggies. Uh, and even today, all my family members that still live there are involved in some sort of farming. Um, I moved out to California for my formative years after high school and became a uh, massage therapist and did that for a number of years. Um, and I guess the most interesting thing I've done so far is we, my partner and I spent some time in Ecuador, I guess five or oh. six years. And uh, we, were, we were living in this really, uh, really cool community that's up in the Andes there. And it was like a five, four or five mile hike from the nearest road. And we spent most of our time working on um, like forest regeneration and land regeneration. Um, the guy that started the community was really obsessed with this idea of building fertility in place. And so there was this big rule when we were there that there was no, uh, no lime, no gypsum, no fertilizers, nothing was allowed to come up the mountain and be used on the gardens. We had to make all of our fertility right there in space. Um, and so that's like, that's really what, I mean, besides my, my being raised on a farm, that's what really got me thinking about microorganisms, composting, um, and, and regenerative efforts. I really learned a lot up there and was able to spend a lot of years just teaching people basic, basic worm composting, basic, um, you know, static piles and just, um, you know, how to build your own house, how to cook your own food, this kind of thing. We'd get volunteers from all over the place that would come in and just hang out with us for, you know, two weeks, two months. It was it was really really neat. What was the uh, altitude there in the Andes? Oh gosh, I wish I could remember off the top of my head. Um, but we were we were pretty high up. We were we were so high up that a lot of crops are are really hard to grow. We were above the banana line for sure. So. Um, yeah, that was something we were always working against. It wasn't cold, the weather was nice, but um, standard crops like tomatoes and melons and watermelons, they just won't grow up there. So we went lost crop of the Incan style. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but there are all these neat crops that like we just, we don't even know about um, here in, in North America. Um, things like uh, just really odd root vegetables and different types of corn and beans and things that we don't really see here. I, the reason I ask altitude-wise is, is I have a, a wish list, bucket list thing for me is to go to Peru. Uh, mm -hmm. We raise alpacas, and mm -hmm. that's where Bolivia and Peru and, and Chile, and actually now Argentina, but they've really been imported into Argentina, is what the native range for alpacas is. I wondered what, what would be the ruminant the wild ruminant that would be uh, in the in the area that you were at when you were there. Ah, so it was, I can't remember the name of them, but they're the smallest species of deer on the planet. Um, they're, they look really similar to the deer that we see, you know, the white-tailed deer here in, uh, you know, California, Nevada, all across the, you know, North America, but they're just little, little bitty teeny things. They only stand a few feet tall. And, you know, we didn't get to see them very often. Um, unfortunately, the area that we were in had been um, just mass burned all the time to create grasslands for cattle, which in that environment, you can imagine it's quite steep. And so if you burn at the wrong time of year, when the rains come, it takes all the vegetation away and destroys all the habitat for wildlife. And so, 
you know, as we would start to allow trees to grow back and grass to grow back and shrubbery to grow back, we would see more animals. But um, generally speaking, it, it was it was birds that we would see coming in. Um, I was lucky enough to see one of the little deer in town one time in somebody's backyard. But uh, yeah, they're not they're not as populated in the area as you would hope. Other than man, what would be the what would be the keystone species in terms of um, the other end of the spectrum, predator type? Are there cougars or? Yes, absolutely. There's, um, let's see, they're called tigrillo, which is like, uh, it's a small cat. So it's smaller than a bobcat um, and kind of lynxy looking. They have little, uh, you know, tufts of hair on their ears, uh, but they're very small, just slightly bigger than a house cat or the size of a, a really big house cat, I guess you could say. Um, and we would have those, they would try to get our chickens, and so we would get to see those. Uh, <laughs> and there's also puma, the same puma we have here. It, it travels, you know, the, that whole that whole landmass they get around. So, um, and I'm sure there's other cats, but not not where we were located, um, more in the in the cloud forest and at lower elevations. But we had puma and tigrillo. Maybe ocelot is the name for it. And I'm, I'm really not, I'm not certain what the name in English is for that little cat. <laughs> Well, there's also bears. Ocelots are, ocelots are spotted. Was this, was this a spotted cat? Yeah, kind of stripey spotty. Yeah, I mean, every time, it's like I have this vague, you know, memory because the moment they would see us, they would jet. And so <laughs> I wish uh, I wish I got more time with them. But well, generally it was a panicked, it was a panicked sighting because I'm just like, oh, <laughs> don't kill our animals. <laughs> At the same time, feeling very grateful that, you know, they're getting the food they need. So. <laughs> so now take us, you know, closer to the present, and uh, just because we see a book that we just saw on the slide from Matt Powers on regenerative soil, um, <laughs> Matt's been a guest with us several times, and we've actually been affiliates of Matt in helping sell um, his programs, so Matt's a good friend, um, but tell us about, again, that transition from massage therapy and and then you went to South America, um, but what what led you into what you're doing today, and and um, and, and what's that process? Sure thing. Um, so when I was when I was making compost piles there, like I was telling you about, every once in a while, um, one of my compost piles would just produce amazing results. Um, I when I said that you couldn't grow tomatoes or you couldn't grow these 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 crops that we're used to here, basil that we're used to in North America, um, sometimes I would actually be able to get those crops to grow. Something about the compost, I believed, um, was making it work out. And other times it wasn't. It wasn't um, every single pile I used, there's something that was changing and I didn't know what it was. Um, when I was living here, I was coming back and forth, and 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 I'd heard about compost teas. I'd heard about Elaine Ingham um, through the Jeff Lowenfeld book, uh, Teeming with Microbes. And so I had an idea that microbes existed. I knew that there was these packets that you could buy. Like they're called like compost tea starter kits. And in these little packets, there were these very expensive microorganisms, and I mean very expensive <laughs> microorganisms. And I thought. Well, there's got to be a way to, to, to learn how to cultivate these and use them. And perhaps this has something to do with the compost I'm making. So I got online and I started searching for Elaine. I thought she was teaching at University of Oregon at the time. And I was thinking about coming back here um, and getting involved in university so I could take her classes. 
And when I started looking online, I found out that she was actually, she'd started her own school called um, Environment Celebration Institute. So um, my, my immediate idea was that I would go to school with her, I would learn how to cultivate these microbes and grow them on my own. And then I would take that knowledge back to the mountain and you know just improve our practices there and hopefully step up our regeneration efforts even more than what we'd already done. And what ended up happening was we stayed in Ecuador and completed our foundation courses. And I just fell in love. I, I love the microscope, I loved the work. And so I decided to come back and start learning from Elaine in person. And uh, it was at one of these in-person classes um, that we actually met our business partners. I'd been assisting with Elaine, helping her in these, um, they were like microscope intensives, where we spend five days just working every day on, on microscope practices and working with large groups of people, which I really enjoy. And um, we just started noticing that we weren't seeing microorganisms in the compost that we had access to. And we started to notice that it wasn't just me that was not seeing the life in the compost. It was everybody was checking compost from everywhere and they're just only seeing bacteria or very few microorganisms at all. And so we were all kind of set up and ready to be consultants. That was everyone's plan. That's like in the catalyst group. Now we were all going to go out and try to work in large scale ag agriculture and try to convert over, you know, this way of farming. But we realized we couldn't um, we couldn't do our jobs until we had the compost, and so I, I never planned on moving back to America or North America. I never planned um, on starting a large scale compost facility. It just wasn't in my dreams or plans at all. Like I'm not I'm not a, a dump truck person or a tractor girl. Like I just I I never saw myself where I am today. But it was more of um, we felt like we had to do it or we weren't going to be able to get anywhere with the career we were actually after. <laughs> so the four of us just thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to get together. We're going to make compost. We're going to make this happen. And um, I think we met, I, I wish I could remember the date specifically, but we met at Elaine's class in the summer. And by that fall, we were getting a bank account together. We were, um, you know, pooling our money together, our resources together uh, to get this compost turner that's in the video right now. Uh, it was just a little teeny thing. And we, you know, everything we bought was used, everything was a little tattered and off, <laughs> and, and none of us really knew what we were doing. We didn't, you know, know, I mean, Zach knows how to drive a tractor really well, but it, nobody really knew. Um, even backing a trailer was foreign to us. Uh, it just wasn't something that we'd been involved in. And so we were all very green in our understanding of how to make compost at scale, and we just jumped in and were completely over our heads <laughs> for the first year. But we did really well. We were able to grow microorganisms out. Um, we were able to do it in a reliable way. We have an awesome team of, I mean, there are customers, but they're really, um, they're really part of the team that makes this mission work because we can't be consultants. We need other people <laughs> to be growing microbes. So it's just, it's actually turned into this, um, this beautiful job that I love, that we all love. And we get to watch all these people um, take our product and then go out to their own gardens or their customers' gardens, or um, even and some of our microbes even go to large-scale, uh, you know, agriculture farm food producers now. And we just get to see people, you know, grow them out, and we get to watch them thrive, and it's it's really cool. And 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 Matt Powers, he recently um, 
started hearing about us through the Soil Food Web School and the promotions they were doing. And he came out, so now he's, we're all on the same team. He's great. <laughs> and it just keeps building, you know? It's great, Wayne. It's just everyone we meet, it's this um, this Soil Food Web feeling. Like our, our, our business, it just feels like a family that's growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so, you know, now I'm somewhere I wasn't planning to be, but I really like it. <laughs> and this slide that's up right now, is that your location and the compost piles there? Yeah, it is. So, um, unfortunately, last fall we had a forest fire that was started by lightning and it came up and um, it, it hit our property. It got a few of our machines and it took out our old compost lot. Um, the videos from before with the little green turner. That was in a little teeny one eighth of an acre compost lot. And that's what we were operating on for two, two and a half years. Um, but the fire was a huge motivator. Um, we can't work up there anymore because of it's just a mess and um, it's not really healthy for us. And we were able to actually put in um, and start using the lower lot that you're looking at now. And that's, uh, I believe it's almost an acre pad. So we were actually able to scale up our operations by about four times what we used to do. And that turner there is, um, that's an upgraded turner as well that we were able to And I'm gonna to have to apologize. I use a, a landline to call in because it's better than my satellite system. And this is it, it's beeping at me. So I'm not gonna get off. I'm gonna actually go into another room, switch the phones. I'm just telling our audience, you guys aren't gonna see me for a second. And I'm gonna keep dialoguing with Keisha here. But uh, so, before I leave and, and have to get the phone. Um, give us a broad scale description of your farm um, because you, you described two different locations, it sounds like, maybe scale and, and then what do you do other than composting and, and what is the size, scale of the compost piles that you have? We'll talk about sales and where you, where you market your compost a little later. I'm gonna just go and grab another phone and you just keep talking, I'll keep listening. But, not looking for a second. Sure thing. So um, if you had a bird's eye view of the whole property, we're, we're in about the same area. That that small lot is, is above where this one is. Um, and then surrounding the whole lot is this beautiful farm. It's called Woman Farm. And it's been a social justice school for the past, gosh, I think 60 years they've been teaching it. Um, and, and they were they actually used to be a, school, a boarding school where people would come to learn about you know farming and and it was actually a high school so um, the whole the the whole land has been organic for probably probably the the entire existence I don't think that they've ever used chemicals on it so it made it an ideal spot for us to do our composting um, we find that. Sourcing really high quality ingredients is one of the most important things when you're trying to actually grow microorganisms. There's so much in um, synthetic fertilizers and um, fungicides, nematicides, all these aside that do damage to microorganisms um, that we actually have to grow our own green material. So if you had a view of, of, of a bird's eye view of, of our entire operation, you'll see our compost lot surrounded by about 15 acres of pasture. So um, the green material is actually about, it's about 30, 20, 20 to 30% of the entire product. 
And um, it's a lot of the focus of what we do is treating our pastures with good biology. Um, that way the plants are growing in a healthy soil environment. Um, those protists and other microorganisms, bacteria, actually cover the surfaces of all of those different green plants that are growing in the field. And so when we cut the hay and we preserve it, we're also preserving a lot of those microorganisms and that nutrition that the plant is able to take from the soil because of the interaction with the microorganisms. Um, so for the past three years, we've been treating our pastures, cutting our pastures, baling it, which is a great way to save green material for any kind of livestock, whether it's a cow or an alpaca or, or microorganisms. Um, we just go with the tried and true method of baling hay. And, um, and then you'll also see uh, a lot of, of, of woody material, which has been burned. And it, as, as awful as the fire was, it was a great source for us to get chips. So now, you know, a lot of our wood chips can come from the surrounding area or from fire clearing on site to prevent future fires. Um, we find with our wood chips, if we can, if we can take them from an area that's very brushy and dense, people don't generally spend the money to treat those areas with pesticides or with herbicides or really with anything. Those are the areas of the planet that are just really left alone because they're too dense for humans to access. Well, now that California is having fires, you know, out of control every year, uh, we're able to actually get those wood chips from those brushy areas and preserve those microorganisms that are still on the surfaces of those, um, of all those different woody materials. Um, I saw that um, there was a level in a previous slide on the top of a, of a compost pile. Mm -hmm. Is there an optimal height that you you try to have is that was that the reason for measuring because you had a measuring stick down below it absolutely yeah so um there is there's an optimal height that depends on which turner we're using i think the bakus is around four feet tall um, and the mighty mike might be three feet tall but um, we have to make sure that that windrow fits inside the turner when we run the turner through it um, but also when we're trying to understand the volume of the pile we're measuring um, the height and the width. Um, but yeah, we put a lot of effort into making sure that all those materials are even throughout the whole windrow. So we don't get variance in temperature. And so the environment is quite the same through the whole windrow. It's a, it's really taking a lot of extra measures just to make sure that we don't have dead spots in the compost. Um, when we sell our product, we're often selling it, you know, 10 or 20 pounds at a time. And that product literally goes to people that are using microscopes. They put it under the microscope and if, if the microbes aren't there, they're not happy. <laughs> and so um, we found that the best way to keep everything similar through the whole windrow is to, um, yeah, make sure that everything is at, at, a, at a specific level. There's been a few pictures when you go through where you can see how we layer all the organic materials. And we try to make sure it's, it's all the same all the way across the windrow. And what is the um, normal time from when you begin a windrow, and one of the slides again had zero turns, one turn, I think it jumped forward to four turns in what you were showing in the slide. And yeah. what's, the, what's the approximate time between the start of a pile and when one is, a, is useful now to be using on a field on uh, in an area? Well, Wayne, when we're lucky and, and everything goes according to plan, it's about eight weeks. But that's not always the case. Um, unfortunately, they don't always 
do what I want them to. <laughs> so some some compost piles will take up to four or five months to get to the um, biological numbers that I like to see before we sell them. Um, and you know the the thing is is we're always trying to get as, as many different ingredients as possible, clean ingredients. So we're often um, you know it's trial and error. We write everything down, we keep our data, and when something goes wrong and a window doesn't work out, and these windows are 180 feet long. And you know, I, I'm I'm not I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how many yards that ends up being, but you can imagine it's a lot of compost. And so when one of these windows doesn't work out and we have to hold it on limited space, it's it's no good for business. Um, it's really uh, it's one of the most it's one of the biggest challenges we have, but at the same time, I mean, I've seen some windrows and, and I think it's just really good starting materials, but you know, they're just beautiful at eight weeks old. I mean, and, and the temperatures are all the way down and they're absolutely ready to use. Um, so that's part of the microscope is we're just always checking, always monitoring, always keeping our data and making sure that all the people are, all people, <laughs> that's how I think of them, all the microbes that we want to see are in place. <laughs> Without getting into a, a, probably a lot of detail related to microbes and their varieties uh, and things, in a healthy soil, about how many different kinds, species, whatever you want, would want to call them, of microbes are there in the in, in the in the community uh, that's there about approximate numbers is it very very diverse hundreds or is it 20s yeah. or five or what yeah well we've been lucky enough we're working with this company out of sacramento called biomakers and we've been getting our 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 compost um, we're looking at the DNA in the compost. And so they, they can't pick up, they can't, not everything is sequenced, so they can't tell us exactly how many different species are in, but they were able to recognize over a thousand species of bacteria and over a, a, a close to a thousand species of fungi um, in, in one of our compost piles. And so wow. it's a very expensive test, um, very, very expensive test, but as we have more funds to do this kind of research, we are planning on um, sequencing more and more windrows. So we can see, you know, who, you know, what species are, are gonna be in every single windrow, no matter what the variation in materials. Um, we can see, you know, different species that come in, but there's just, we know so little. I, I just know that we have really great diversity. And I, and I would guess that most compost piles that are biologically focused, when you're looking at it, when we look at it under the microscope, we're not um, identifying the species. Uh, there's, it's really, it's difficult to tell. Um, and so it, it's, it, it'll look like maybe there's four, five, six species of fungi, maybe is our, our guess. But once you start sequencing the DNA, there's so much there that we, we just don't see. So I would imagine that anyone that's out there using their microscope and seeing these kind of results under the microscope could probably boast the same diversity, if not better. Cool. By the way, just a couple of comments from some people in the audience. We've got somebody from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which is kind of cool. Grant Pass, Oregon, Fort Collins, right here in Colorado, Western Kentucky. Um, cool, got a very good diversity. A couple of questions from the audience, just because you've already talked about at least 
one of these, uh, and then this last question related to the other. How much does a new turner cost about? Oh, oh my goodness. Well, the small one, like the one we have is, uh, I think, 120000 maybe 160000 You can check um, the Bakus website. They they can give you better information. We bought ours used. We were lucky to be able to access a used Turner. Um, but the Mighty Mike Turner, the green one that you saw um, you know, earlier in the presentation, um, that one cost around 18,000 new. That's not um, counting delivery, but uh, just, to have it, just to have it created is 18,000. And that's a great starter machine, but you have to have a tractor to pull it. So you're gonna look at a little bit of, you're gonna incur extra costs there. Cool. Um, and then this one relates to the, you know, the diversity of species and how long it takes for a, a pile to mature. Uh, Justine asks, does the season affect the time for the compost pile to be ready? Absolutely, it does. Um, we have to adjust our recipes always, depending on the temperature outside um, and what we have available, of course. But um, you, you might not think this, but the compost actually finishes faster in the, in the winter time. Um, I believe, you know, maybe just when it's colder, the bacteria aren't as uh, aggressive at multiplying as they are during the summer. But it rains during the winter. But I, I, I highly, I prefer making compost when it's cold outside because our fungal numbers just, they get there faster. Cool. Um, this is a great, all these are great questions. but. Um, and you've mentioned this a little, but what are your main, comp this is from Kevin, what are your main compost materials and where do you source your compost material? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so 60% of our pile is going to be woody materials and, and that's, that's adjustable, but we like to use quite a bit of carbon. Um, and so wood chips, we, almost all of our ingredients we pay for or we grow. Um, there's a big difference between large-scale waste reduction facilities like your local dump and, and what we do. Um, we are not allowed to have materials dropped off at our site for, uh, for, for free <laughs> because that takes a green waste facility permit. So we're always um, looking for new materials and we source them in all kinds of different ways. Um, Sometimes we chase down chip trucks <laughs> and ask them to, you know, dump the jump the chips at our house so we can load it up in a trailer and bring it in. Um, sometimes we seek out uh, like we golf courses or you know these places where they have to do a lot of debris clearing and they do the chipping on site. So we've got folks that spend a lot of their time just calling around to anywhere you can imagine being creative to source these materials. It's, it's really, really challenging. We found in the beginning when we were only making these small windrows that it was no problem. Um, I could call an organic gardener and they'd be happy to give me their pile of weeds that they pulled out um, of their veggie patch. Or um, it would be you know, easy to just go pick up a pile of wood chips you know, from the side of the road where we saw that they'd done brush clearing. But at a point when you're pulling in hundreds of, of, of yards of wood chips at a time, you just have to be very creative. Um, our other sources of, let's see, we have our green materials. That's the hay that uh, we bale up on site that I talked about earlier. We generally try to only buy hay. If we have to buy hay, we try to buy it um, from people that don't spray. So you can imagine that's another added challenge 
Sometimes we spend days calling around from place to place to place and everybody just sprays their alfalfa or um, they've, they've put chemicals on the green material for some reason. Um, so we're often just seeking out that high dollar organic grass just to try to make certain that we don't have these piles that you know, don't meet our minimum requirements for sale. Um, the other ingredient is high nitrogen. Um, and we try to diversify that as much as possible. We use, we do use some manure. Our manure comes from this woman. <laughs> She's amazing. She has a, uh, a, a horse stable. Um, they keep their horses out on pasture as well. And she's a biologist who's actually taken Elaine's classes. Once we started taking manure from her, she like got super excited, signed up for the courses. Um, and so she knows exactly what we do, why we do it. And anytime her horses need to have an antibiotic given to them, um, she will set that manure, that horse will get separated and that manure will get taken aside. And so that way we know that um, all the manure that we get is clean. There's no um, antiparasitics in it. There's no anti-anything, antimicrobials at all. Um, and then I think another video, it was played earlier of, of these seeds. Um, we love to use seeds as a high nitrogen material. We like to get as much diversity as we can. And um, so we've been using bird seed as of, as of late. Um, it's a great place where you can get a, a cheap grain that is just loaded with diversity. There's millet, there's sunflower seeds, there's quinoa. Um, they tend to really pack bird seed mixes out with lots of different species. So uh, for now, that's what we're using. We've had other things, um, rice chaff or wheat chaff or seed coatings, you know, whatever comes available. Generally what'll happen is we'll find something and we will we'll love it. it, it works well in the compost, but we'll exhaust that resource um, due to the season or, or just the volume of compost we're producing. So um, it keeps us on our toes. We're always looking for more organic materials that uh, qualify to be a part of the mix. And um, for if you were to break down your current income from your farming operations, and which is primarily composting, is that your primary income source, or is it consulting or other things? What is your farming primary income? Yes, you know, I wish I could say that it was from the compost. It, it, it's not yet. No, um, every single one of us has a second or third or fourth job that keeps this business running. Um, you know, the, the price of the compost is quite high. And so it, it looks like we're really rolling in it. But uh, actually paying for input materials uh, as as we've as we've gone through the years of production and actually looked at the costs, it is very expensive. It's like it's like uh, cooking organic meals at home. It's it's buying these high quality ingredients is it's a lot. Um, but that being said, we're learning to refine our processes. We're learning to be you know just more clever about everything that we do. And I, I really think this year or next year. Catalyst will be uh, our main our main source of income. Right now, uh, yeah, there's no way. <laughs> I think um, that's typical, though. Like I, I hear that businesses often take you know three years before they really you know are off the ground and running. And so <laughs> I'm hoping this is our year. What when you do sell, 
you know, most of your sales bulk, so people driving in large trucks or and having trailers and, and where they're fertilizing um, a farming situation or using the compost on a farming, or are they little gardeners for the most part? We have, we like, uh, we have a lot of different, our, 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 our customers are as diverse as, as the microbes in our compost. Um, we have a lot of consultants that have gone through the Soil Food Web School that use our product for their work, um, and they often are buying in bulk. We do have large-scale uh, organic farms that are, you know, getting bulk deliveries. We ship out a lot of one to two yard totes. A lot of people are, are using our product as a, as a compost extract or compost tea um, or something to mix into the soil just to invigorate it in the beginning. Um, but recently, excuse me, I think in the last year, people buy it sometimes by the handful. Um, students will buy a handful of the compost that are going to the Soil Food Web School because they need to um, graduate their class. And to graduate, they actually have to have um, a healthy sample that they're looking at with their microscope and they're, they're quantifying for their teacher. And so we have students that buy our compost just to be able to adventure around and see microbes. Um, sometimes it's quite hard to make good compost in the beginning. Um, and so they'll, they'll just buy a little bit of ours. We also have people that buy five or 10, 20, 30 pound packages, and they use them as startup for their own compost. So they'll buy five, start, five pounds of our compost, and those are the microbes um, to put into their pile that really gets everything going. And, um, and, and, and even, even better locally to us, we've started selling at farmer's markets, and we've got backyard gardeners that grow in containers you know, they've got four tomato plants on their backyard and they buy five pounds and, and they just love it. So um, what I see is that in, in the beginning where it was just the high-end crops, now everybody's excited about it. Um, anyone that's really, you know, had that idea of how microorganisms work with plants put into their brain, they, they, they're excited to buy the product. So it's getting more diverse, it's getting more exciting and, and we're, yeah, we're all over the place with our sales. Awesome. Um, where would you like to see both your life and your business in 10 years, let's say? Oh, 10 years. You. <laughs> well, I guess there's, there's two ways to think about it. Um, a lot of what we do is I, I, I really want other people to be making compost. So it's, it's this really interesting, um, thing to think about where I would, I, what I would really like in 10 years is to know that all the large scale compost producers um, in North America, around the world, maybe that's too big, but let's just go big. I would like to see, uh, we at Catalyst would like to see all composting being microbial focused. I would like it if you could go into a store, a Home Depot even, and just pick up good compost. Uh, that's essentially the goal. and. I guess if it comes to a point that we actually reach our goal, Catalyst might not exist as it is today. Because that would mean that there's a lot of other people out there <laughs> making the kind of compost that we make. So our, our general plan is to learn how to scale this and then help other people do the same. We really, really, really want to see producers thinking about um, the, the microbial content of their compost. And then we want to see farmers thinking about the microbial content of their soil. So on one side, it's really about pushing this um, idea to you know, people that have more space and more ability 
to access organic materials and really make massive amounts of compost. And then it's about large-scale agriculture and getting these microbes into the food sources that we all eat. Now, I would love to be able to go to Whole Foods, for example, and just know that everything on that shelf <laughs> was grown in soil where microbes were present. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, I imagine that if that was the case, we would all feel a lot better. I think human health would just explode and go through the roof. We'd feel so good if our food was really good. So, you know, maybe 10 years is, 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 is closer than I think, but uh, that would be the goal. <laughs> It'll go by in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> the last 10 um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, Justine asks, what kind of hay do you use? And, and does oh. it matter? She didn't ask that. That's my portion of it. But what sure. kind do you use? So we use um, whatever grows in the pasture. So when we moved in, they'd, um, they'd had a lot of sheep on the pasture. And so you just, most of the land was barren. There was no plants growing at all. And then there was some weedy species throughout. We composted with the weeds and, and it made great compost. Um, and now after we've really treated the land, there's a lot of plants that come up that they're not so much weedy species. They're later successional native grass that just, you know, grows. And we use any of it. The big thing to focus on is diversity. That's what's really important. You don't want one type of grass. You want as many different types of grass as you can get in there. And it doesn't have to just be grass. It can be, um, it could be dock, it could be calendula, it could be mint, it could be whatever you're growing. Um, as long as it's not uh, one of these plants that's very famous for being, having antimicrobial properties, um, it's gonna work for your compost. So um, yeah, we just, we just cut and bale whatever grows and we, we try to promote diversity. But uh, luckily, uh, our, our soil is just growing the diverse plants that we need. Super. Um, you mentioned a partner earlier. Um, and then did the whole group of you from Ecuador come back? So is it, then I was hearing even more people involved. So is your business <laughs> sort of multi-family here? Is there a little community? There are a little community. So my, my partner, I go, we've, I've been with him for Casey Ernst. Um, he's often up with me presenting and these kind of things. Um, we've been together for 10 plus years and we were in Ecuador together. Um, but the other three uh, guys, or other two guys in our, in our business, we met at Elaine's class. So um, Zach Ellis and Gregory Munn, um, they're students of Elaine's and they're both local to here and we just we just got along great and <laughs> we all had passions that were directly in line and we just jumped in head first to make compost. But interestingly enough, um, my group from Ecuador, my friends from Ecuador have actually, a few of them have signed on to Elaine's classes and taken the same path that I did. And they're starting a compost facility down there too. I'm not, um, I'm not involved with it as an owner or anything like that. I just, um, you know, I'm a cheerleader for them. But yeah, I'm starting to see it come back around. So we have our community here in California, and then the community that I left is also taking charge and and making microbes for, for the folks that live there. So uh, the idea is catching on, definitely. Um. In the process, how how much 
manual labor when you have the turner is there so oh. how much is it how much is it shoveling and so on it's a it's it's a good amount of work for two or three people so the way we build our windrows it's a little bit of a machine human fusion so zach is often on the tractor he's very very good uh with finesse and splitting one bucket into 18 different parts which is kind of mind-blowing for me <laughs> but um you'll always see two or three of us on the other side of the pile and we'll have you know our rakes our pitchforks our shovels and we're the ones that spread everything out and make sure it's very even. Um, so uh, yeah, we haven't gotten completely away from, from labor hours. In the beginning, those guys, I tell you, they would, they would be pitchforking materials from all over the place. We had two trailers and we would just be collecting organic material from farm after farm after farm. And those guys put in way too much work, um, just manual labor. And I guess like if you're a person who's gonna try to start making compost at a small scale, that's something that you have to consider is it is a lot of manual labor and it's not easy on the body. But as we scale and as we get new machines and we get smarter and more money, um, it gets more and more mechanized. But we still, every time we build a windrow, um, there's four of us, five of us there. And uh, yeah, we, we, we do it a little bit by hand and a little bit with the machine. <laughs> How do you market and sell? And marketing for others and is really not selling. Marketing is sort of the materials you use to help you sell. And then sales is, is the actual process of having it change hands. So how do you market and sell? So the actually the, the Instagram that you guys have been watching through the whole presentation has been the only effort that we have put out for marketing. Um, a lot of our business comes from word of mouth. And so what will happen, is one person will use the product and then they tell all their friends about it. So it's, it's, it's actually like our team, our, our customer base that has done so much of the work for us. They're fantastic, um, always sharing good news. And then the school, I mean, um, we get to be involved in these webinars with Elaine. And so very often, Casey and I will be um, you know, on the internet, answering questions, um, par participating, and we get a little bit of, uh, of a push from that as well. But um, generally speaking, we haven't done much marketing yet. Um, we've been nervous that if it really, you know, if, if really, uh, you know, 2,000 people called me today, I wouldn't have enough compost to sell them. So uh, we've been trying to scale smartly. One of our biggest fears is that, um, this is weird too, because it would mean more money, but one of the biggest fears is that the success would push us into going too far too fast and that the quality of the product would come down. So we've really, really been careful to scale really slowly, um, to not take on more than we can handle as far as customers go and to try to keep our product, no matter what size you know, our lot is, keeping our product the same quality. Um, and that's gonna be our aim as far as we can scale up. Um, that's what we're trying to go for. I've heard so many times of just really fantastic compost companies getting bought out by the big guys and then the pressure's on for them to create the product and sell and quality goes down the drain. So we're trying really hard to keep that under our control, under rain until we figure out how to do it at a scale where we can just, you know, have microbes out the door as fast as demand would like. 
if I bought a, um, you know, a, a, a 55 pound bag, which would probably be about a third, no, maybe a tenth of a yard, or if I bought a cubic yard, or if I bought a pickup load, which is probably three cubic yards, what is the approximate price that you charge for? So it depends. Um, if you were to come get the 55 pounds from the warehouse and pick it up from us during a time that um, we're open, we would charge around $100. It basically, and then it basically is like $2 a pound, I guess, um, as you scale up. It's more expensive when we ship it because we have to go to the post office and sales are just not regular. So um, it's, it's far more expensive when a package gets mailed out. But um, yeah, so a yard is seven fifty. Um, uh, fifty-five pounds is gosh. <laughs> I'm not the numbers person of the group, but I think the forty-pound bag goes for, gosh, I don't know. Makes me want to get on my website and look the look the prices up. <laughs> but it, it, it the the price is really going to depend on whether or not we're having to package it up, ship it out via post office, or whether you're going to come by during our business hours. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so 10 pounds is $80, 40 pounds is 200. That doesn't include the shipping either. But it's it's really, really reduced um, for the folks that come in and the local people that that come in while we're already open and we have somebody available. It's difficult. A lot of our guys and us included, we live quite a far way away from the farm. So you can't imagine, sometimes we'll come all the way down the hill and spend you know three hours just packaging up something to send to one person. But it is something we're looking at is actually putting our compost into bags and then getting them out on the shelves. And so that would really bring the price down quite a bit. I think I think we were pricing, was it 40, let's see, 20 pounds, 40 pounds at $55. It's like half of what we sell it for right now if we actually get it into the stores because that just takes away all of our packaging. It puts it all on the store. And so, <laughs> you know, they're the ones that have to be there and have to sell it. And so we're working on figuring out a way to actually package the product um, so that it's shelf stable and that people can still rely on that quality, even though it's in a plastic bag on a shelf sitting for, you know, who knows, a month sometimes. What um, what's what are some new things you'd like to be doing with your farm and with what you're doing with the compost, if there are any? Yeah, the, the what I really have interest in for the future is figuring out really what you can get away with for good results with the product. So when we started, we assumed that it would take one to five yards per acre of our product to actually see good results. Um, and that was just um, ideas that we'd had from our own regeneration efforts on a very small scale. But very recently, we've had some large-scale farmers that are using, excuse me, using our product at like less than 20 pounds per acre. And they're seeing these incredible results from just this very, very, very small amount of compost. Um, and so I'm really wondering, like, you know, it, that's not bringing the soil up to the numbers that we want to see it. It's not like one or two applications at this rate is going to fix it. But 
they are getting these fantastic results from it. So I'm just, I'm, I'm curious in the future to play around with the compost more and use these bigger machines and like really, you know, get it out on larger swaths of land and look at the data, you know, see how, how everything comes back. Um, we've been so focused on just making compost, making compost, making compost. We don't have much time to apply it, but that's really the next step. And then also the DNA research, like I was talking about earlier, um, when we when we're thinking about scaling up and we want to start going, you know, large scale compost waste reduction, and and we're trying to make you know waste reduction materials actually like a, a nice stable biological product, there are these issues that we come across with the input materials not being clean and being treated with chemicals, and so I have this idea from basically from what Elaine has taught us that if we can use an inoculum. Um, that we already have microbes present, and then we start to compost with these um, green materials and woody materials that have been treated with these synthetic chemicals that we're so afraid of. I believe in time, what we'll end up doing is selecting for the kind of microorganisms that break that stuff down. And that would be the ticket, is if we could figure out a way to, you know, be working in a facility that's producing 300, 600 tons per day, and we know that the microorganisms that we're cultivating are actually breaking down the glyphosate and the other chemicals that, you know, they're just, they're things that we don't want to come through the system. And so, yeah, that's that's really what I'm looking forward to in the future is, is working at scale, working with um, trying to cultivate specific types of microorganisms, and then learning how far we can go um, with large-scale application. Justine has another great question. Um, what's the shelf life of your product? It is a good question. So we have some people that have actually, I, I got a complaint from someone once that they'd bought a, comp a compost from us like a, a year, a year and a few months previous to the complaint. And they'd, they had one of the groups of microorganisms had gone down, but everything else still looked great. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's, you've done such a lovely job taking care of the compost to only lose one group of microorganisms. So um, you can think of it like it's, it's living. So I could send you a yard of compost and it's completely possible that if you leave it out in the sun and it dries out that you know, those numbers would drop down and go away in, in just a few days if it gets too hot and too dry too fast. But if you take the compost and you use it thoughtfully and you keep it in the shade and you keep it moist, not too wet, yeah, it could last for over a year. Um, there is a point where we start to see the numbers just fall. And I think it's just because the food resources get used up. Um, so at that point, they have to be fed or put in the soil or somewhere where they can eat. But um, yeah, the shelf life varies just depending on care. And, you know, that's something that we just have to basically educate each customer about and just let them know how to take care of their new micro babies. <laughs> we have about six minutes left, so I'm going to implore our audience to put some more questions in, a lot of you out there. And um, if you've got them, I'm going to continue to ask until I see some from you. Um, <laughs> What would a com what would you recommend that a compost user be able to identify in the compost to make sure that it was healthy? Would they have to have some of those microscopy skills or is there anything they could just do by physically using their eyes to look at it? 
Hmm. Well, yeah, so it, it is best to be able to check it with the microscope. If you're looking for microbial content, it's the only way to really know. But um, moisture, um, if you go to buy some compost and it's, it's dry, just very, very, very dry. You feel it with your hand, you squeeze it and it just falls apart. That's not really conducive to micro life. So a lot of the times, like what you're looking for is a nice moisture content. When you squeeze it, that it's like, Imagine a piece of chocolate cake and, and what would happen to that chocolate cake if you squeezed it in your hand. And that's about the moisture content you're going to want to see in a really rich, um, in a really rich blend. Another thing is the color. If it's um, very, very dark, like, like black in color, or if it has, you know, a lot of white throughout it, that's probably not the best stuff. You're looking for a, like, the color of a dark chocolate bar. Um, yeah, it's, that's that's our compost there on the screen. It's uh, definitely not all the way dark, but a, a light brown color is what you're actually looking for. Um, another test, and this isn't, it's possible for compost companies to add humic acid powders or humates to their blends, but one thing you can do is you can take that compost, you put it in a paint strainer bag, and when you stick it in a bucket, a five gallon bucket of water and you shake it, you're going to see this lovely color come out into the water. Um, and if you see that chocolatey color come out into the water, those are that's humic acid and, and fulvic acid. And, and it's it's a sign that you've got good fungi in there that that are actually creating these um, these substances. So yeah, there's a few tools that you have um, at your disposal besides the microscope. Yeah, you gave some great ones there. That's awesome. Um, what what would a, a compost that I bought at Home Depot, which probably is not anything more than just ground up organic matter, that what what would it cost typically? I'm guessing a lot, lot less. A lot, lot less. Be... A lot, lot less. So if you're buying by the bag, I mean, sometimes they go as low as. Um, gosh, you know, five or six dollars a cubic foot would be on the very, very low end. As far as the yardage goes, um, our stuff is going at 750. A lot of the material that you buy local here is going for from $50 to 150. Um, and then if people are adding food resources to that material, it'll be up upwards of 350, 400. Um, but that's the thing that you gotta remember is it's, um, it's just a different way of doing things like the the dump is is they're getting organic materials and they don't want to just bury it in the ground so that compost is actually it's a waste product of of the you know reduction industry and so a lot of times like you say it's, it's wood chips mi mixed with cow manure um, and they're just kind of waiting until it cools off and then and then that's what's going into the garden and so sometimes you end up with some harmful compounds that i don't think they intend for them to be there, I, I don't think that um, I don't think they're thinking of it in that way. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times you're going to do more harm than good with those materials. But I can completely understand why it's better to sell a bag of compost than to just bury the organic materials in the ground with all the plastics. So, you know, there's got to be this. Um, Hopefully there's a day when we can all meet in the middle and that stuff that's coming out of, you know, your local dump, your local green waste facility, you know, maybe they'll think about it just a little bit more. 
Um, I know it's starting to become more common practice for them to separate out chipboard and treated lumber and um, things that have really bad chemicals in it. So I'm really hoping to see in the future that like, yeah, what, what if biologically complete compost could cost $150 a yard? Like that would just be so ideal. And it's definitely the goal. So, um, you know, let's just hope in the future that we can figure this out and, and start to see more people at scale actually working towards this common goal. Because, I mean, man, if, if I could just go and, and get a base material of compost to mix ours into, our customer base would be so happy just to know that someone big was working on making a really good material. Maybe it's not as high quality, but, you know, closer. So <laughs> there is a big difference in price. <laughs> Yeah, no, all over the map. Um, so I've got one more from our audience, from Justine. And again, um, type some questions in. This will be the last call for questions here for, for everybody. Um, great question here. She says, and this is great to see kind of in the, 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 the end of the presentation type question. I'm working on, this is Justine, I'm working on the foundation course one for the Soil Food Web School. Can I reach out to you in the future with questions? Of course. Yeah, my Instagram is a great place to find me, Catalyst Microbe Adventures or Soil Microbe Library. I host both of those pages. My literal phone number is on our website. Yep, <laughs> we're seeing it right there. So, okay. Oh, did I cut out? No, no, we're seeing the phone number. It, it, it's right there on the page. So. That's it. So, yeah, you can contact me with questions. Um, no problem. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's really nice. And she says, Justine says, thank you. Um, if, you know, and this is more probably an Elaine question, but if a person was working full time as a certified soil food web consultant, about how many clients could they be working with, do you think? Well, that's a good question, and I actually I don't know the answer because I have not been pursuing that that aspect of the career. But yeah. you know, I would say it's it's very involved being a consultant. Um, you know, you're 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 the farm is really really counting on you. So I would imagine in the beginning it would be less because you you know you really want to focus on them, and then as you get more experience, I would I would imagine you're you could also take on more clientele. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't really answer that question. Um, oh, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, well, I don't see any other questions here, and we're a little bit past the top of the hour. This has been awesome, Tisha, and, and um, we didn't talk about the dog. I'm a dog guy, and I see your your, your puppy there. That was kind of <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. But, but maybe another time. I got to I got a hint from Mark or Reed at the front end here that if, if you enjoyed this and, and the audience liked it, that you might be willing to come back and talk again. Is that right? Am I, yeah, of course. That's cool. yeah, I'd love all to. Right. I'll even bring all of you on. You can make a guest appearance. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, well, well, we'll definitely talk about that. And I'm sort of looking here again. No other questions. I've got tons of them, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll save mine. I can call, uh, shop and, and do that separately um, mainly from the perspective again I don't know if you if some of you were on but right now Elaine and I are negotiating uh, a relationship between the eat group and uh, soil food web 
uh, and, it, and it may be that we have a very formal relationship, very good, when I say formal, um, very sincere and very important relationship moving ahead. We're just in the middle of sort of negotiating all the details of that. So we're excited about that. And here we go. We've got one more. This is the last question. Well, last question we're going to get. So it looks like she's typing it because she says one more before you leave. Sorry, I'm late. Um, this is Melanie. Um, she says she's looking for advice on how to source good nitrogen for her for compost. And she's in Nevada County. <laughs> so. Okay, well, let's see. If you only need a tote or so, like 14, 15 gallons, you could call me and I could probably get you some manure. Um, but what I would say is get on, on Google and type in Nevada County manure producer. And what's gonna come up is there's a, there's a, a really, really nice um, spreadsheet that um, I'm, I'm not sure who put it out but it's really easy to find and it's got probably 50 different manure producers on there and there's everybody from alpaca farmers to pig farmers to goat farmers and um, their phone numbers and email addresses are listed right there and so you can just call farm after farm and there's a lot of great ones where you could go and load yourself up and there'll be gosh, five different kinds of manure at that one farm. Um, a lot of people here are hobby farmers, so they'll have a little bit of everything. And that way you're gonna get that diversity that you're looking for um, and you're gonna keep it local. So yeah, just, just Google that list and it'll come up. And if you can't find it, let me know and um, I'll do my best to get that over to you. Well, awesome. All right, well, Keisha, again, it's been lots of fun. Um, you are welcome anytime to come out here to Colorado. We we actually have mm, a thousand cubic yards of our own compost that we've yet, we've created, not necessarily paying attention to all the the right approaches. <laughs> However, my wife and I are both microscopists. We, we are our so our compost is very rich in microbes, and we use it for just our own use. We've got 40 acres of pastures that. That we use for hay because we're all completely organic, natural, regenerative for our for our livestock. So it's, it's completely for our own purpose. But we turn down a hundred different requests for composts a year um, in our area just because we just don't have enough. We we really need to produce it for just ourselves. So you know, there's a demand, huge demand out there. So. That's true. Well, it's good to All hear right. that you're well, farming, Wayne. Okay. It was really nice to formally meet you. Yeah. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> you bet. And we will we'll work hard to get Keyshawn again, everybody. Thank all of you. You've been a great audience. Thank you for your questions. And we have an amazing guy coming up in two days um, that is a no-till agriculture guy, one of the founders of that concept. He actually has a foundation called No-Till Agriculture. And his website is no.till, no.till, which is kind of cool. So uh, Steve Schwapper is his name, and he'll be with us two days from now. Thank you, everybody. And Mark, why don't you take us out? Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the East Community Podcast.